anything in life that's worthy is going to come with risk. Having differences of opinions and having different viewpoints will only make your company better. You're looking for things where the conventional wisdom is wrong. That's sort of the holy grail. The SME Empowered Podcast. Dream big, act bigger. Three, two, one, and we're live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the SME Empower Podcast. I am your host, Max Getuba, and I'd like to officially welcome Sagon Fidens Iragena, the Managing Director of Park and Pick and the Horticulture Working Group's Chairperson. So welcome to the show. We are very happy to have you. Thank you again for the opportunity. Um, my name is Fidens, as Max has just mentioned it. I'm 40 today. I'm from Rwanda. I'm the managing director of that company called North Harvest with an owner and grocery store called Park and Pick. We do offer home delivery services as the only way to understand what people eat, how often, how much, and to communicate them to the um, farmers uh, who might probably be ready to produce according to their tastes, preferences, rhythms, and of course, purchasing power. And to get here, I had to go through different stages in, in anyone's life. Uh, went to school in Patri in Rwanda and China in the US and I graduated from France uh, in a university called Picardy, Jules Verne. And I have a master's degree in organizations management and specifically on innovation management. And um, I, I consider myself as to be a very enthusiastic person. I get involved in so many projects. And for the last 30 years, I have been cycling, uh, riding, and sometimes working through 30 countries, different countries on five continents. I am happy to talk, uh, to share my uh, outlook on life and on, on different other subjects that Max will be happy to uh, introduce uh, today. Thank you for that intro. You're quite a fascinating individual, and I'm very happy to have you again. So um, just on your company, could you share the problem that you identified its importance and give us some clarity on how you and your company are solving it? Thank you again. Uh, the company is called North Harvest. Uh, I was created in 2013. I would probably date its birth back in 2000 when I was almost 15. I met a lady. She was almost the same age as me at least the same size, height, kind of. And she was crying. She was on the side of the road. She was crying because all oh, her tomatoes were scattered on the ground and um, no one was really there to rescue her. I was part of a youth movement called Xaverians. It's a kind of Catholic version of Boy Scouts. And the sixth rule of, of uh, Xaverian says, Xaverian says, in the needs of others, an obligation to help. So I said to myself, instead of going to the parish for some leisure time, I better do some good um, charitable work. And we reached out with my brother, Alain. Uh, we collected whatever was left of the tomatoes and we accompanied the lady to the market. It kept ringing in my head. Uh, what if my parents had not had that chance to go to school? I'll probably not have the chance to go to wander, to have even some time off on my school holidays. And I can't understand that some kids at my age have to sacrifice this much 
um, so to feed themselves, to find some money to go to school, and of course, to feed me. And when we reached the market, we saw how people were, that they liked the tomatoes. I said to myself that I am not, not only this lady is sacrificing her life, but also I'm not safe because uh, our house help at home is going to come to buy the same tomatoes that we've collected from the ground. And she won't know that these tomatoes are not safe. So if I have something to do of my life, I should figure out how to feed people properly. Of course, having some <laughs> uh, a formula to feed the cities without anyone being injured or uh, putting her life at, or his life at risk. So that's when I decided I took, I, I gave myself 20 years of my life to understand, to learn, to keep myself, to connect with the right people, the right skills, so that I can invent ultimately that formula. And uh, I can't, I can't pretend I've discovered it, but uh, when I came back from school in 2013, I started farming. I, I was really eager to invest in agriculture, first to understand everything, who is who, who does what, and what are the inefficiencies to be addressed. And that's when I started learning that in Rwanda, and the same, some, sometime even more uh, uh, happens in African countries, other African countries, we lose 40% of our agricultural production, which is an equivalent of 12% of the GDP. It's not acceptable, especially when you know the consequences that the same farmers, 70% of the Rwandans, their kids are stunting. In Rwanda, we have stunting rates for up to 38. So two out of five of the kids in Rwanda are malnourished, especially when you know that it's a time bomb that is going to come still on us in 20 years from now, where we have to feed people without them working. So I said, I can't help but contribute to alleviating this and probably tackle this time bomb, which is unemployment, which is malnutrition, which is... Um, I mean, all the consequences to that situation. So that's when, in 2018, I pretty much quit the corporate jobs and I started investigating. I had a survey in my neighborhood. Would guys, do you eat? How much? How often? What are the challenges you meet on your, when you are on your way to access quality fresh food? And they all would say, if we had an alternative to the current situation, we would definitely take it. So I went again, I spent some time in markets observing who is who, who is in what capacity, how much money is, in, 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 um, uh, uh, is at, at, at stake. And I, I, I mean, I end up saying this is, will be an eternal survey if I don't turn it into something. So let us, instead of going back to farming activities, let us offer home delivery services. And that's when we can not only structure a formula, but also at the same time impact people and having reliable data. Because if there's something that we lack, the reason why we have all these problems, we don't know the ins and outs. We don't know the numbers of agriculture. We don't know the numbers of our nutrition. We don't know the numbers of whatever we need to tackle. We don't know the numbers So if we can have some digital way to deliver food, then we can grasp at least part of the uh, food patterns of Kigali. Let's not talk about Africa. 
first Kigali. If you happen to feed, let's say, 10% of the Kigalians, then we are good to go. We know who, what farmers should be farming, how much should be shipped to Kigali. And if you happen to cut the losses from 40% of agriculture production to less 10, we can afford to feed people properly, cheaper, and of course to give decent, um, decent fair returns to farmers and having a more equitable, um, um, more equitable agriculture value chains. And that's what we are trying to deliver. Sorry to be too long. <laughs> Thank no, you. no, uh, that is a, a wonderful answer. And um, I'm very impressed by what you and your company are doing. So uh, just to get back to the economics of it, um, could you share what market opportunity lies in, Af in agriculture in Africa right now in the future, just because you've talked about the food waste, um, do you have any data on how big that market is? Um, yeah. So I've I've tried to uh, list countries that have the same problem as Rwanda, which is um, agriculture um, losses, but also malnutrition. Which the two numbers should not be correlating, but. Um, uh, with curiosity, I found out that in Mali, they lose up to 80% of their agriculture production. And I consider this as to be not acceptable. And uh, we people keep on argumenting, uh, arguing that uh, it's due to post-harvest losses, it's due to the lack of proper um, uh, handling systems, it's due to, pro, no, to the lack of logistics, it's due all this, uh, sorry to say that, <laughs> forgot, uh, forgive my French if I say, oh, that is not true. The reason why we are failing to feed up people properly and happening to lose all that value is that we don't know who we feed and we don't take it as an accountability on our side to feed people properly. If it was in the constitutional uh, format that every African should, should be eating uh, to his satisfaction, then things will be different. And of course, I still consider that to be, food is a basic human right and should be really sealed in some constitutional uh, format. And when you ask me about the African uh, perspective to agriculture and possibilities and, and opportunity, it's huge. We'll be 2.5 billion in less than 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. If we happen not to be able to feed the people we are having today, 1.5, 1.4 billion of Africans, will we still be able to feed the 2.5 in 20 years from now? So we have a window of opportunity of 20 years to figure out what max eats, how many max we have in town, how many towns we have of, full of maxes, and how much these maxes are allowed to eat or will be willing to pay for. It's if we have that mix, we know how max eats, how many people we have in, in, in how many maxes we have in town, how many towns we have full of maxes, we can't fail to secure that stock. So what we're trying to do is to put this data together so we can connect with other people who either have skills, money, and of course other infrastructures that can help us not only to grow properly 
And at the end, in 2050, food, if we consider people as to eat still, which will probably even evolve, definitely evolve, $1 per day, that's 2.5 billion spent every day, which will be spent every day on food. Multiply with the 360 days in a year, that's a trillion industry, a trillion dollar industry. So behind ammunition, food comes first. In Africa, people spend up to 60% of their revenue in food. So whoever wants not only to tackle, to have an impact, but also to make money alongside, should be investing in agriculture. Not only you are tackling your problems, your world problems, global challenges, but also you are um, uh, pushing other industries because our, I mean, our arsenal is our farm. If we failed, if we have some bullets uh, thrown here and there, we might probably not be even win any war, especially that the war to malnutrition is a war that creates other wars. So we should tackle it before any other uh, challenge we have in our societies. So sorry if I have been probably too scattered or not very straightforward, but agriculture, food, nutrition are very um, lucrative. They are the industries of the future. And if we don't we fail to do that, someone will do it on our behalf. And guess who? The Chinese are there. The Russians are there. The Europeans have already done that in the past. They are likely going to do it in, in the next future. If we fail to do it ourselves, someone will take that opportunity to feed us with nothing. And of course, we still remain the slaves that we have been for the last 500 years, if I, if I don't uh, forget the dates. So yeah, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, very inspiring. Thank you for that answer. Um, uh, I think also that um, to add on that, uh, Africa also contributes about 3% of um, you know, the world's emissions when we're talking global about global warming, global warming. Uh, talking about global warming, we contribute around 3% of emissions, but um, when it comes to uh, people who are affected by climate-related disasters, we are actually uh, affected much more with the droughts and famines and um, such things. And, you know, that, that just puts into perspective how important the problem that you're trying to solve is. And I wanted to add something. We have 60% of all the arable land on the globe. It should be our responsibility, not only to feed ourselves properly, but also to feed the world. It's not just responsibility and moral responsibility, but it's an opportunity. So if we happen to not focus on getting that, optimizing that, and making sure that we're playing around with it, we are missing an opportunity to be not only a, 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 um, a, a global player, as we should be. Today, Africa represents 3% of all the global trade. It should not be. With all the potential we have, I think we should really cherish it and safeguard it. And one of the ways to safeguard that, um, uh, um, I cannot call it uh, monopoly, but it's a, a strategic status Africa has when it comes to food and to agriculture. We should really be forward thinking about what will be um, 
the risks and how can mitigate them ahead of time. So we consider climate change as the first threat and we really tackle it ahead of time. But I don't know which, I don't want to like to list all the solutions and the, poten the potential opportunities. But I mean, it's a good um, uh, playground for whoever wants to have fun uh, exploring in the, the, the cross um, the crossroads in between uh, food, energy, and of course, water. Demography is not a problem, but when we know that uh, even counting our own people is difficult, you can't count grains if you've not counted people first. Yeah. So we are far behind and we are missing on our homework, which is feeding our people first and feeding other people as well the rest of the globe and making money and making an impact along. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, that's very enlightening. Um, just as you were speaking, I was also thinking about um, what you were thinking, what you were talking about was value chains, right? So you're using data to sort of um, improve and optimize the value chain of agriculture and that solves the problem of food waste. Um, and that's a distribution problem. But when now you're also talking as well um, about the fact that we have 60% of our land here in Africa that's not um, productive, although it's arable, um, what is your perspective on how we can also improve production? So uh, is that an insight that you have into using science or technology into also boosting production of, of food as well? Oh, yes. You talked about it as to be a logistics problem. No, no not a logistics problem. Uh, only uh, you talked about it might probably be related to the production cycle as well. But uh, allow me to disagree. First, it's a problem of rights. I talked about it when I was mentioning constitutions and, and other laws. We can't fail to deliver security to our people. We can't fail to deliver uh, health to our people. And part of it is food. We, we should not fail to take care of our people when it comes to food. And we don't have a production problem. If we can <laughs> today, with all we do, we still afford to feed people more or less. And at the same time, flushing in the water up to 40, 50, 60, 80% of whatever we've put in the soil. So if we happen to be very, uh, I mean, good stewards to what we happen to have at least pushed to harvest, we would not even be asking ourselves about the production part. Of course, if we happen to be, uh, if, when we get ready to feed the, the uh, other uh, part, the rest of the, the, the world, we can start talking about how can we improve so we can produce more. But if we fail to feed properly our people, we've more than what, uh, with just what we've produced, then what happens when it comes to opening up for other markets? What happens is sometimes even we go farther and start uh, um, ruling external markets. We're into exports. 
exports today are criminal. I consider them are to be criminal. Sorry to be too opinionated about that, but how can we export yet we fail to feed our people? We're compromising the chances for that export to be even sustainable because the same people who would be eating today, strengthened today, are going to be weakened. So in 20, 10, 10 to 20 years, you will not be able to sustain the same efforts we are putting in today. So if there's something we should be doing today, as a human right is feeding our people properly with what we happen to be able to push to harvest then we can go into how can we produce more after notice that our people are fed now with the potential we have we can afford to feed more than just our people then that's when science comes in comes in in, in hand and helps us not only to find the good seeds the good fertilizers but also apply not just randomly apply the what's needed and that should not be very like it's not rocket science we have today we were born at a very good age where we're uh, artificial intelligence where all these gadgets can help us to apply properly and optimize our uh, fertilizers, our water, our um, uh, our um, fungicides, whatever inputs we need to put into our land, our uh, arable land, to be able to produce to maximize the production. But that is a second uh, problem. Let us first feed our people, and it's possible. And it's not a logistics problem. It's not a production problem. It's a human right problem. Mm -hmm. Sorry if I probably diverted into a very advocating tone on that. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, it's a very interesting perspective. I've never really thought about it like that, and I'm sure I will uh, have enough time to digest it. Um, so just to follow up on that, you see that the most productive agricultural countries on Earth are countries like the U.S. They use genetically modified uh, organisms or GMOs um to facilitate that what is your opinion on on that technology as a potential um savior for africa's agricultural problem uh-huh again that's a very capitalistic way to look at things we want to produce more because we want to attract external markets and we'll be feeding them with sheep sorry to say that as long as they they're going to to buy it I think with the grains we have today, we can afford to feed people properly. So there's no need to go fast into creating new genes. If even the genes we have today, we happen not to be able to like, properly manage them. I don't think too much of, of uh, GMOs is a solution to food uh, scarcity and to malnutrition. I think is knowing the people and committing ourselves to feeding them properly is the baseline. Now, GMOs, of course, if you happen to have droughts and have uh, organisms that can resist droughts, we should probably go there. But in first place, what used to happen before um, uh we've had these floods we've had these droughts 
did we have not genes uh okay seeds that are more endemic so indigenous way to preserve the seeds if we happen to be innovating around that instead of looking into how we can modify genes and by the way they're not creating them because they like us they want us to be dependent to their markets so that by the time a certain point we'll be too dependent and you can't come back and say we will be uh, self-reliant and part of our resilience plan should be what are we doing to preserve indigenous seeds and some other people are doing it so Latin America is fought so hard to like to be GMO free country and they're not failing at all because they're together they understood and they want to hold on what they have to cherish which is food independence which is the first independence actually happening so new zealand of course they are into this globalization and they want to get uh, much of, of of whatever they can get from outside but i don't think that should be our way if we're not sold if we're not already uh, there's no plot on africa to to, to go fast into this uh, on this track we should preserve what we have and try to innovate by preserving it and seeing how we can create them from here by here and for the people here and the moment you are receiving these aids and you consider them as to be a way to save and a shortcut to our, our um, food um, uh, security we are lying to ourselves it's a shortcut and it's definitely a trap so i might probably be very um vocal on this and uh, not so dogmatic but i consider this as to be a national strategy strategic uh challenge and africa should have a collective understanding about these uh trends thank you uh, thank you for that answer. Also very interesting and uh, contrary, and I'm sure that um, our audience and myself will uh, definitely uh, think about that perspective for quite a while. But now as we can switch gears um, a little bit and talk about uh, yourself, um, because you once famously took a 100-day, 8,000-kilometer trip through Southeast Asia alone, on a bicycle on a $300 budget. So that's 300, I mean, $3 a day to be precise. Uh, could you talk to us about what inspired you to do that? Oh, thanks. Uh, when I was my MBA classes uh, back in Wilworth uh, University in Spokane, Washington, I had a teacher, um, his name is Rich, Richard Charts. And he's a global guy. He's a very like a Renaissance uh, kind of soul. And one of the things he would do at the beginning of every class is to mention a fact about Rwanda and say, um, in the country of Fidance, uh, women are majority in parliament, uh, 53, 57%, more than any other country in the world. The following day, he would talk about how um, Rwandan coffee is being sold in Starbucks at a premium uh, price. The following day, he would talk about how 
we have the highest rate uh, of representation when it comes to uh, um, how do you call this peacekeepers and he will go on and on and on and find a fact about Rwanda that might probably overlook but he mentions it said to other people to discuss probably some uh, uh, people uh, um, discussing about these global uh, um, uh, issues but he would also challenge me and say what are you fidance doing about it so it was a good challenge because right after that uh, in december 2018 no in eight at the same time the economic uh, crisis of 2008 and subprime crisis that just unfolded uh, I decided to shave it off and to take a sabbatical year and instead of staying in that, um, how do you call that, the capitalism castle, which is the United States. Uh, by the way, Washington Mutual, which is was my bank back then, was the first bank to go bankrupt, but yeah, with the crisis. So I decided to come back to France. I worked as a waiter uh, for six months and I, um, yeah, some good money especially because really i wanted to make sure that i uh, uh, i get good tips and, and i took i took a loan i took a loan of six thousand usd and uh decided to go to china not only to learn what china has done in the last 60 years so today they can afford to build to give us as a gift african union's headquarters in the, in the 60s, 70s, Nyerere, the president, of, the former president of Tanzania, used to give them wheat. They were hungry. In 60 years, they figure out how to feed their people properly. They're now not only feeding the world, but also welcoming the world and seeding uh, uh, friendships everywhere. And I say the only way to discover what China has done is to go in China, but not only to stay in cities, but also to go in the deep countryside and to see the little towns, the little Chinese, the ordinary Chinese, what are they doing to support this economic breakthrough? So I went to China. I took um, uh, an exchange program with university, International Studies University in Beijing. And three months down the road, I had basic survival Chinese uh, under my belt. And I took a, a bicycle, a giant. Um, I equipped myself with like six, uh, 600, uh, no, $600 of equipment and uh, 13 kilos of uh, provisions. And I took off from Beijing on the 10th of January, 2009. And I, uh, no, 2010, and I traveled from city to city, challenging myself to not only understand, touch the heartbeat of China through these rural areas. I would meet two people every day, a, a, a man and a woman, and ask them three questions. Where, what's your name? Where did we meet? Um, what's your, what are you doing today? What's your idea? What will be China like in 10 years from now? And if you have a sentence or a, a, a word, a single word that really um, 
concentrates or the feelings you have today. Please teach me. And with these, over a month, I had 60 uh, copies, questionnaires filled out. And when I reached Hong Kong, I had a Hong Kong commercial press. They put me in a good hotel, five-star hotel, fed me properly and bought everything I would need in that same hotel, asking me to produce some kind of book out of my trip. I told them, no, I have not learned anything so far. I have four other countries to go through yet, and I don't think we, you, the right people, to write this book. This book will be written by what Africa will learn from this journey, and I've yet to write that book yet. And the reason why I think um, I was too stubborn back then, because my ambassador back uh, at the time in Beijing told me that I am crazy and I should probably think of preserving myself by staying in Beijing instead of um, going in something very uh, dangerous as, as a trip throughout China. And they said, ah, you're not my father. I'm not asking for advice. You're not any charitable thing. I'm not asking for help. I just need you to give me a flag and the to whom to make concern so that I can wander around freely knowing that at least officially, uh, some people know that I'm out in the country. I did from Beijing to Tianjin, Tianjin to Jinan, Jinan Shandong, Jinan to Wuhan, Wuhan to Shangsha, Shangsha to Guangzhou, Guangzhou to um, Shenzhen, Shenzhen to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Macau, from Macau to Zhuhai, from Zhuhai to Guilin, from Guilin to Pingxiang. And I went through the borders. I went to Cambodia, to, Thai, to Vietnam first, from uh, Hanoi to Ho Chi Minh. And from uh, Vietnam, I went to Cambodia, from, uh, um, from Batambang. No, 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 no. From Simriep to Batambang through um, Phnom Penh. And I visited that country that has been like subject to, to some genocide back in the 60s. But I wanted to learn if the Southeast Asia is able to feed 2 billion of people today, why Africa is failing to feed one single billion? Are we retarded? What are they doing that we can't do? Are they superhumans? If they can be these Asian tigers, why can't we be at least our own savanna animals but be proud of what we can do for our people? So I don't pretend that I've discovered because they are very diverse, like Hong Kong, Thailand. It's not like any other country in Asia, but they're part of Asia and they happen to be the engines that are pushing this uh, continent further. And I think we have a, a thing or two to learn from what they've done. We don't need to copy and paste, but taking some lessons is not, uh, doesn't kill our pride. And um, I think I'm trying to do something, get inspired by what I've seen people doing. And hopefully with what we happen to put in place and the people we meet on the way and all the people will be able to inspire, We'll be many, we'll be a critical mass of people trying to look, uh, to look out to Asia when it comes to getting inspired what to be done for a country to move from fourth world to the first. 
sorry, I can be very long, very extensive when it comes to that journey, but yeah, it's somehow uh, um, 10, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah, it's an amazing and, uh, story. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's an amazing story. And um, I just uh, like to ask so, what did you learn ultimately um, about this problem that you're so passionate about solving, which is uh, feeding Africa? What did that trip teach you um, about potential solutions to that? All right. So without being too presumptuous, um, I learned more about me than anything about food. <laughs> of course, I took I took uh, one 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 dish, which is uh, egg fried chicken, mm-hmm. egg fried rice. I eat. I ate the same recipe from Beijing down to Hong Kong. The reason why I wanted to do that, I wanted to see first the composition, how it changes throughout that um, um, uh, axis and the price, how does uh, that recipe or or that um, diet impact purchasing power throughout uh, the journey. And of course, if with the compositions, different different compositions, it defines whether or not this region is rich or is um, educated or is uh, well off than the other. So I wanted to create uh, an economic index called Dan Chao Fan, which is egg fried uh, uh, rice. Um, that's that was a way to see how are these people being fed. Is it really complete? Uh, does everyone get that minimum um, uh, nutritious food? And the only way to do it is to eat with them, to share with them. And they will welcome me whenever I, I feel tired, I will go to someone and say, can I get hot water? Because hot water is something that everyone has in their own homes and they don't, um, um, they can't refuse to give it, to give you hot water. And beyond the hot water, they would invite me to eat, to dine with them. And that was the only way to get an opportunity to enter their homes and to share what the food they eat. And from the north to the south, I was able to taste different things, um, snakes, uh, dogs, and uh, and all these little things that probably Africans would not eat because they can afford to have beef. But people were proud, and because they can, they have a very sophisticated way to uh, to season it and to mix it with, up with something else, with and adding some kind of um, vodka on the top, which is baijiu, and that is the the power I learned through this. And say, if they were begging for rice sixty years ago. And today they can have a diversity and feed people properly three meals or even more a day. And having all these to export, there's something we can do. And apart from that it's possible, I learned that it's possible. 
And I learned that it doesn't require that much. It's just a self-determination that we should feed our people. Then Xiaoping, which uh, who was the um, the success successor to Mao, um, no, one of the successors to Mao, in in nineteen eighty six eighty seven, he said, "Today, every Chinese eat to his hunger." It's a very strong statement coming from a president. Not only it shares it shares the ambition they had that they were able to achieve in less than 20 years. And if we happen to have some kind of motto or, or slogan, then let this generation of Africans set that too. Say, I want to see in my lifetime a political leader, a leader in general, saying the same about Africans today tonight every african has eaten that is a small sentence but it defines an entire set of achievements that a lot of things that we need to be that needs to be done for us to be able to say that sentence so it's a very concentrated uh kind of call for action that we can also uh learn from that uh, that trip it's possible it takes political will and of course they've been able to daunt um tsunamis they've been able to daunt uh typhoons they they've been able to 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 daunt they even have some desert and uh, and more than and and, and and winters so if they have been able to domesticate they learned despite all these different uh, uh, um, hazardous uh, setup, we also can do it in Africa. So that's pretty much what I learned throughout the journey. But I learned more about myself than about food, as I told you. I learned that I can lose 16 kilos and still be able to cycle. I uh, learned that we have as many good people in Shanghai as we have in Seattle or in Tumkutu, we have as many crazy people and I'm not crazy alone. Because along the way, I met people who were doing almost the same thing as I, I was doing, of course, with different motivations. But when you see that you're not crazy alone, you just require a critical mass of Africans doing crazy stuff to move mindsets to the next level so that's pretty much my my wish is seeing more africans going out of their um their uh, paved ways to show the possibilities to discover opportunities and of course to connect with what matters for this continent to go further thank you yeah thanks for that answer um very interesting story um very fascinating as you said that uh, not many people would um be um brave enough to really just uh, you know take that step and take that 8000 kilometer trip or start that company 
um, just to have that kind of experience. So uh, what did you learn about developing the mindset to get up every day and do hard things like that until you've achieved something great? Um, I think if I had not put myself under the same pressure of doing it, I will probably not have done that. So uh, what I would probably urge other Africans is to dare. Dare going up. Dare showing up every day. Doing as many things in a day as you can. So the moment you found one single reason you'd be here for, it gives you more energy than you, 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 you thought you had. Then you can read then you can learn, then you can spend sleepless nights, then you can sacrifice your comfort to achieve that. So discovering our call, our calling is one major thing that every young would, should aspire to. And the only way to do it is to get yourself out and to try things and to be out um, chasing your your, your 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 potential pretty much potential comes when you train and and you train and you train unceasingly because you've discovered that for which you probably probably not die but at least something that takes you up and say if in my lifetime i can see every african fed even if i die the same day of i've seen that i'll be happy and that single thing, narrow thing, keeps you focused and committed and um, um, with no compromise. All your energy is focused on one single thing and you can't fail to achieve once you get everything that would drain you here and there, that would scatter your mind into one single thing that it matters. Matters not only for you, but matters for many more than just the people who are probably in your family. So I think the only thing I would probably ask the people is discovering the inner uh, calling and showing up every day to learn, to discover, and to connect uh, with that small thing, but that is um, uh, what matters uh, to, to, to the many. And by forgetting what fame can come, um, by sacrificing that glory can come, but it should not be your ultimate uh, uh, objective. Money is just uh, a fuel, but if you just count money, you forget the dream and the dream dries up very quickly and the money goes with the dream. But if you focus on the dream and give it more than 100% and um, without counting your hours, of course, money comes along and all that comes uh, on, on the top. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, on this podcast, we have a traditional final question, um, which is a question of legacy ultimately and i think you've uh, pretty much told us what it is throughout this episode um 
but what kind of world do you hope to create through your entrepreneurial endeavors? Wow, okay. <laughs> okay. So I believe a more equitable world is possible. And if not in my lifetime, I want to die why I'm trying to contribute to it. Humans have what it takes to live peacefully and first to eat properly and to live peacefully in this world. We're gonna figure out how to do that. And every second of my life, every breath should be committed to discovering that balance. I think that is it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. That's an amazing answer. And uh, I thank you for sharing your story and your mission. I am sure that it has been very thought provoking for the audience and it will definitely uh, make a huge impact. And uh, I'd also like to congratulate you on your own um, pursuits and uh, on your own accomplishments. And I hope that uh, you will accomplish more and more and make even a larger impact than you have. Thank you. And looking forward to seeing more and more inspiring stories. And of course, and seeing people giving feedback and reaching out whenever they need. Don't hesitate to share all the contacts if that's possible. No problem. Thank you so much and uh, have a great day. You too. Thank you, Max. Bye. Hello, everyone, and thank you for making it to the end of the episode. I know exactly what you're thinking. It was uh, very long, um, but um, controversial and, uh, you know, contrarian at some points. But, um, you know, it's important to have multiple perspectives, challenge your own beliefs and assumptions, and, um, you know, ultimately make better decisions and um, have better and more informed opinions. So, you can form your opinion. I certainly had uh, different opinions on on quite a few of the matters, uh, but great episode. Um, and uh, I'd like to thank uh, Segond again in his absence uh, for coming on. So other than that, you can feel free to reach out at Max Getuba on LinkedIn or at Max Getuba on Twitter or um, at the SME Empower podcast on Instagram. And, uh, of course, uh, please subscribe to our newsletter um, if you'd like to keep up to date on uh, the posts we make every week. So we do um, one podcast post every fortnight and one newsletter post every fortnight. And uh, if you just don't want to miss anything, it's uh, much better to uh, subscribe at theimpactfulcapitalist.substack.com. Thank you so much for making it to the end and see you in the next one.